0: beautiful. Thank you, Pastor. If you take your Bibles, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for tonight's part of tonight's message. The rest of it will be in Daniel chapter 9. But we're continuing on our final in a series about a panoramic view of the Bible. It may be today that the Lord returns for the church. And it may, uh, it may be much later. We don't know, but we have to be ready. It is imminent. It is going to happen at any time. And I've already covered the book of First Thessalonians in recent weeks. And Judy, could you turn the green light on for number two? We don't have anybody back there at the sound board. Check. There we go. That might be good. Thank you. First Thessalonians, chapter four. Beginning in verse 13, here's what the Word of God says, speaking about the rapture of the church. This is the Lord coming back to rescue us out of this present generation, or the generation that is alive at the time. God says this, verse 13, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope, for... in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The doctrine of the rapture of the church is under attack today. The, church, the mainstream church, the mainline church, and mainline even evangelicalism is, not, is, is kind of discarding or, or putting away with dispensationalism or pre, the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. To me, it's one of the foundations of our eschatology, of our doctrine of things to come. I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture that the Lord... is going to come at any moment. Uh, It is imminent. Nothing has to precede it. He is going to come for the church. He will take us off this earth, or again, those who are alive at the time of his return. And after that, the consummation of all things, including the working working with Israel for seven years, and his glorious coming in power and glory, which we refer to as the second coming. So I do believe in a final second coming of the Lord in power. But before that, he will rescue the church and take the church off the world scene. And we call it the rapture. Again, it is a doctrine that is now not being believed and is not being taught and propagated like it used to. And uh, many people think they're being intellectual and scholarly by disavowing it and walking away from it. I firmly hold to it and this church holds to it in its doctrine and I will show you why big thing we have to always remember Israel is not the church and the church is not Israel when we read the Old Testament we read it in light of Israel and God's promises to Abraham in the covenant God made a covenant with Abraham three things God said Abraham I will give you physical land on earth he never gave the church physical land we get a little corner here but we paid for it Uh, um God said, Israel, Abraham, I'm going to give you land, and then secondly, I'm going to give you physical descendants, actual biological physical descendants. The church has not promised that. People are born again into God's family, and it's a spiritual birth, but we don't have any physical lineage as the church age goes on. Third thing, God said, out of you, Abraham, and through Israel will flow spiritual blessings to all nations, and that we know is the Messiah and the gospel. Those are promises to Abraham that will be fulfilled. Israel is going to get their land. The book of Revelation tells us how they're going to get it back. They don't have it all right now. They have a small portion of it, but they don't have all of their land, and they don't have their Messiah sitting on their throne, on the throne in Jerusalem. So a lot has to happen, and the book of Revelation will teach us when and how that's all going to to come about. Meanwhile, tonight, here's what I'd like to do. Two things. I'd like to show you clearly that the rapture of the church not only proceeds, but is different than the second coming of Jesus. They're totally different events. And again, today, they're throwing them into one event, saying the Lord comes for the saints, and then immediately comes to the earth to set up his kingdom. And I'll show you why that's not true, and that's not possible from God's word. Then I'm going to take you to the prophecy of Daniel quickly, and I'm going to show you that the book of Revelation is really the fulfillment of one seven-year period that Daniel defines. And then we'll be able to jumpstart from there and and land next week in the book of Revelation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together in the word. Help us to understand the importance of these doctrines of things to come and to really have a a desire and anticipation of the Lord's soon return. We could be the generation that will be alive at the coming of the Lord for the church, and then it will set off a cataclysmic series of events that will culminate in the second coming of Jesus back to this earth to touch the ground and to set up his kingdom that is a thrilling future and father we know that there are struggles and and life is full of difficulty and sorrow and grief but we also know we have great hope in a risen savior who is going to make right everything that sin has corrupted so we long for and we look for the day that the lord returns for us and then he comes back and he, and he establishes his kingdom on this earth. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So with your Bibles open, uh, at least to First Thessalonians 4 for, for a part of it, we won't go to all of these verses. And if you have your outline in front of you, I want to contrast tonight the difference between the rapture for the church and the return of Jesus to this earth. And again, I, I want to clarify. Two different events. Here's why. And I'm going to take uh, the, the two columns, and we'll just go point by point, and, and I want to show you the difference between the two events. First of all, in the rapture, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, Christ comes for his own. Christ is coming for his own. The dead in Christ will be raised up, and we who are alive will be caught up together with him to meet him in the air. But in, in uh, the return of Jesus, in the second coming, he comes with his own so in First Thessalonians 4, he comes to get us, and the dead in Christ rise, and we meet him. But in Revelation 19, he comes to earth to judge and to make war with his own saints. Number two, in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Jesus returns, and he comes for the church, and he meets us. We meet him in the air. He never sets foot back on earth. We meet him in the air, and from there, we go back to heaven for the judgment or the reward seat of Christ. But in the return, the second statement there, in the return of Jesus, Zechariah 14:4 4 says Jesus returns to earth and he sets foot on the earth. Totally different events. One he only goes to the air to meet us, and the second he comes actually to earth to touch down and to establish his kingdom. The third point, for the rapture, he comes and he claims his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And we know that there he claims his bride. First Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, the dead in Christ rise, and we in the church age who are alive will meet together to meet him. He claims his bride at that point. Um, the third point, Revelation 19, as I mentioned, he comes with his bride. We'll be riding horses following the Lord as he returns back at the end of the seven-year time of tribulation. My fourth, my fourth point of contrast, First Thessalonians 4.17, he removes believers off the face of this earth. He removes the removal of believers. The purpose of his return, though, is not to remove believers, but Malachi 4.2, the Lord will appear. It's the manifestation of Christ to the whole world. He's going to make himself known. That's why the book of Revelation, Apocalypsis, it means the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the revealing the unveiling of his return, the manifestation of Jesus Christ. My fifth point: First Thessalonians 4 says, "Only those, only those in the church will see him. Only his own will see him. The rapture is an event for the church. It's not for the whole world, it's for the church. And I believe the shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God will be heard by believers and will be caught up and the rest of the world will be really unaware. They'll be confused. Whereas, my fifth point regarding the return of Christ, Revelation 1 says, when he comes back in power and glory, every eye shall see him on this planet. There's going to be no mistaking, this is the Son of God coming from heaven back to earth in his second coming. The rapture, Second Thessalonians 1 says, after the rapture, there's going to be the revealing of the man of sin and... Um, The beginning of the time of tribulation for the earth. So the rapture will come. The man of sin will be revealed. And then the tribulation follows. Whereas, in verse, in the sixth point regarding his return, when he comes back in Revelation chapter 20, the Antichrist isn't revealed. The Antichrist has done his work. Jesus establishes his kingdom. The millennial kingdom will begin. My seventh contrast between the rapture and the return, the saved are delivered from wrath. First Thessalonians says that we who believe and are caught up, we will be delivered from wrath. We're not appointed unto wrath, but we're appointed unto salvation. So we, although the church will suffer, we're not gonna go, we will not go through that, um, that seven-year time of great tribulation. The saved are delivered from wrath. Compare that with my seventh point under the return. Revelation 6, says, when Jesus returns back to this earth, the unsaved will experience his wrath. So we are delivered from wrath in the rapture, but when he comes back in his second coming, the unsaved will experience his wrath. Revelation 6 says that the mighty men, the great men, the free men, the slave men, all the men of earth, all the men and women of earth, when Jesus comes back and they're in the unsaved state, they will be so afraid of the wrath of the Lamb of God that they will ask the mountains to fall on them. They will wish huge rocks would crush them so they would not have to experience the wrath and the judgment of God. Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back and he comes to judge and to make war, the Bible says there'll be carcasses of unsaved mankind, all littered over the earth, and the birds of the air will have a feast on their carcasses and on the horses' carcasses. It's going to be a traumatic event. Clearly, the rapture and the return are different things. For in the rapture... We're delivered from the future wrath. But the second coming, they will experience the very wrath of God. The eighth contrast between the rapture and the return. The rapture will come like a thief in the night. No signs will precede the rapture. No, fo- no prophecy has to, be, has to be fulfilled. Please, make sure you understand this. There does not have to be a series of earthquakes or famines or pestilences. There doesn't have to be all sorts of things, although there was one in the Midwest, right? Down in the uh, Oklahoma area the other day, there was uh, like a 5.6 earthquake that was felt even up to southern Minnesota. That is not a sign of the Lord's coming. Is the earth beginning to tremor more and more? Absolutely. But um, I don't even think it's one of the signs of his second coming. That will take place, Matthew 24 and 25, will teach us when those signs will be pointing to his coming. Everything is getting set up for that point, but we can't say every flood, every hurricane, every event is related to the second coming. Um, But for the rapture, nothing has to take place. The um, the temple doesn't have to be built. The Antichrist can't be revealed. None of that's going to happen before the rapture. Simply, the Lord will catch us off the earth and we'll be taken. However, my eighth point for the return... Of Christ, signs will definitely precede his coming. There'll be six seals, and there'll be all sorts of signs in those—earthquakes, rumors of war, famine. Um, that's when all of those things will unfold, and there'll be very clear signs and clear dates as to exactly when the Lord will come back to this earth. There'll be definite signs. The rapture and the return are completely different events. My ninth point: the focus of the rapture according to the passage I just read to you, is the Lord and the church, we who are alive, the church here on earth. But the focus of his return after seven years is Israel and setting up his kingdom, Israel and the kingdom. Right now, he's dealing with the church. When he finishes the work with the church, he he will come for the church. And uh, the focus after regarding his return is Israel and the kingdom. My 10th contrast. After the rapture, the world is deceived by Satan and the Antichrist. The world is deceived. But the contrast regarding his return, and the anti, uh, the, Satan is not deceiving the world. When the Lord returns, he will bind Satan. Satan is bound. So in one case, Satan goes out and deceives the world after the rapture. But after the return, Satan will be bound. They're, they are different events. And then finally, the rapture is a mystery. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Paul is going to tell us a mystery. It's something that's been hidden from all ages in the past, but has now been revealed to us. Nobody knew about the rapture. Nobody knew that a whole generation of living believers would be translated up to be with the Lord. It was unknown and it was unheard of and it was not taught, but the Lord revealed it and it it was now um, a truth that, that had finally come out to light. Whereas the second coming, the prophets in the Old Testament spoke many, many times about the second coming of Jesus. It was, it's not a mystery. It wasn't hidden. Even Enoch, the seventh one from Adam, he knew the Lord will, will come down with ten thousands of his saints to, to um, make war against all the ungodly men with all their ungodly deeds that they have committed in an ungodly way. So even Enoch knew the Lord's going to come back uh, with power and glory. So the return of Jesus... It was a subject of many Old Testament prophets and most of the Old Testament related to it. It's not a mystery. So I make a big clarification between the rapture of the church when the Lord comes for us and he doesn't touch the earth but he brings us back to heaven and then some seven years later he comes to earth and he does it to set up his kingdom. Now, again, that distinction is being blurred today and I want to make sure you understand that there's a difference. Take your Bibles, go with me to Daniel. We're going to look at this text in Daniel chapter 9 and then we're going to move over to 2 Thessalonians as we close. Daniel chapter 9. So we see some differences clearly about the rapture from that text in 1 Thessalonians 4 especially in 1 Corinthians 15 and then we see the second coming which the Bible speaks most about. Let me show you why there has to be a gap between the two. Daniel chapter 9. So let's begin in verse 20. Here's what's going on in Daniel, Daniel's life. Daniel was taken captive. By the way, when, they went in, when Israel went, Judah went into captivity in Babylon, they went in three different groups. Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael went in the first group, and then there were two more subsequent groups that went into captivity. And when they left captivity go, to go back to the promised land, they came back in, in, in three groups, right? Um, so, you, so you understand that. So Daniel went off into captivity, and while he's in captivity, he's getting older and older and older. He went out as a youth, and now he's become an old man, an older man. And he comes across, and he's reading the scroll of of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said clearly to the people of Judah, you will spend 70 years in captivity. Now here's why. God said to the Jewish people, I will bless you, and I will bless your land if you obey me. If you don't obey me, I will curse your land. He said, then he said, one of the rules you must follow is the Sabbath rule for the land, which means for six years you plant your crops, and then on the sixth year, God will give you double harvest, a double bounty, because he wanted you to let the land grow fallow for one whole year, to let it rest. The land even had to have a rest, or we call it a Sabbath year. Then After the seventh year, you can start planting and do that for six years. Let the seventh year, let the land rest. Now, you're a Jewish person and you're living in the days of the Old Testament. And on the sixth year, you get double beans, double peas, double uh, double corn harvest, double wheat harvest, double barley harvest. You get double of everything and you have to build another barn. Now, what are you thinking? Are you thinking we should let the land grow fallow because now we've got enough to live on for one more year? No, you're thinking... Wow, I just made twice as much money on my crops. If I keep planting like this, I'm going to make four times as much money. And they became materialistic and greedy, and they didn't let the land grow fallow. They, they actually harvested on the seventh year when God said, don't do it. And they kept this up for 490 years, which means 70, 70 years when the land should have gone untilled, they were actually tilling and planting and harvesting. Oh, God was angry. God said, I let you go for 490 years and you've done this to me? You, you will not obey my word? You're, you're more concerned about yourself than you are about following and obeying and loving me? So God said, I'm going to get my 70 years of land rest back. To do that, I've got to get you out of the land. He takes them out of the land so that for 70 years they're in Babylon. Can they plant, in their, in their, can they plant their fields? No, they're up in Babylon for 70 years. And once God gets payment for those 70 years, he can bring them back in the land. So Daniel's reading this, the book of Jeremiah, and he's understanding this. And he's like, wait a minute. I have been in Babylon 68 years. Two years, and we get to go home. So he prays. He begins to pray, and, he's, and he prays, and he confesses the sin of the nation and his own sin. And he begs God to do what he said he would do get them out of Babylon, and bring them home to the promised land. Right? Does it make sense? So while Daniel is praying, and he's speaking and praying this, look at verse 20, Daniel nine twenty. now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, The man Gabriel, that's the angel, whom I had seen in a vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. It's like three or four in the afternoon when the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel as he's still praying and speaking the prayer that's previously in this text. Verse 22, and he, the angel, informed me and talked with me and he said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Okay, here's what he's saying, everybody. See, Israel, Judah was being chastened for bad behavior. They were being disciplined by God 70 years in Babylon. And Daniel's like, God, stop the chastening at 70 years and bring us into the land. What the angel tells Daniel is... Daniel, you'll get out of the land, you'll get out of Babylon in two more years. You'll get out soon. But my chastening for Israel is not over. There's going to be another period of chastening, and let me tell you what's going to happen at the end of it. Okay? That's what Daniel's going to be told. What's going to happen to Israel in the next segment of their life? Take a look at verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined. Now, that in the in the Hebrew, 70 weeks. It's literally 77s. It doesn't say weeks. It doesn't say years or days or months. It just says 77s. But if I go into a bakery and I say I'd like a dozen, what am I looking for? A dozen, if I'm in a bakery, it's a dozen donuts. I mean, you kind of understand based on the context of where you are and what you're doing. How many years has, has Judah been in Babylon? 70 years. So Daniel's thinking years. He's already in the year mode. And now, the angel says, Daniel, 77s are now appointed, listen to this, for, for your people. Who are Daniel's people? Jewish. The Jewish people. So is it for the church? No, it's for the Jewish people. 77s are determined for the Jewish people. Something's going to happen to the Jewish people for, the, for these 77s. And for your holy city, what's Daniel's holy city? Jerusalem. So this prophecy is not about the church; it is about Israel and it is about Jerusalem. Okay. Now, what's the seventy sevens? Well, in the Hebrew, it could be it could be days, weeks, months, or years. I think, in the context, it has to be years. So seventy times seven. 490. God loves to work with the number 7 and 49 and 70. So here he's working with 490 years. God is telling Daniel in 490 years something's going to happen regarding the Jewish nation and the capital city Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen, six things, and I'll do them quickly to finish the transgression. It's specific. There is a certain transgression that Israel committed that it will be completely, it'll be completely done with in 490 years. Now, I don't know what the transgression is. Here's what I think it is. I think the transgression is they rejected their Messiah. They rejected all their prophets, right? They persecuted and abused, and they rejected all their prophets. But when it came to the Messiah and he came on the scene, they rejected him, handed him over to the Romans, and killed their own prince of life you agree? So that is the transgression that Israel did. They rejected the Messiah. Here's what the angel says. Daniel, in 490 years, the transgression rejecting their Messiah, rejecting their king, will be over. So now Daniel knows. This is good news. It's great news. Secondly, to make an end of sins. The rebellion of the nation Israel, their hard-heartedness and stubbornness, after 490 years, will be completely done with. There will be no more sin, no more rebellion. Third, To make reconciliation for iniquity. Their iniquity, their sin against God will have been paid in full and they'll be brought into a peaceful relationship with their God in 490 years. Fourth, to bring in everlasting righteousness. There's going to be a righteous rule and a righteous king bringing righteousness to the whole nation in 490 years. And then fifth, to seal up vision and prophecy. All the visions and prophecy that had been declared in the Old Testament, all of it, will be fulfilled. It will have uh, reached its climax regarding the nation Israel and the promise of land, seed, and spiritual blessings. So, all of this in 490 years. And then finally, to anoint the most holy. It could be to anoint their king, the most holy king, or to anoint the temple. And all of the holy things related to the temple. Either way, that's going to happen in 400... They have to wait 490 years to get that accomplished. Sounds like good news, doesn't it? That's, it's phenomenal to think sin will be done with, vision and prophecy will, be, will, be a, will have been fulfilled, the king will be seated on the throne, everlasting righteousness will be the standard of the day. Great thing. It's only going to be 490 years. All Daniel needs to know is when does it start. So that's next, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. All right, so here Daniel needs to know the starting point of the 490 years. It's going to be a command to restore and build Jerusalem. The problem is there are four commands like that through different ages and different periods with different kings of the Medes and Persians. But it says, look at the end of verse 25, the street shall be built again. That's the open plaza in front of the gates because you'd have the gates of the wall going into the city and then you'd have this open, right inside the gates is the open or the plaza And then it says, the street shall be built again, and the wall, it could be the moat that is around the wall. Either way, if you have gates and a moat, what do you need to have? Walls. So the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is really the command to build the defense system of Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem. And that's going to start off the 490 years. We know when that took place. In the days of Artaxerxes, the king, which is after, now after Daniel, in the days of of, uh, Artaxerxes, Nehemiah was the cupbearer. And he heard that Jerusalem, particularly, was trying to be rebuilt, but it wasn't happening because there was no wall around the city. So whatever they did in the city, the enemy would come in and tear down. So Nehemiah knew the walls need to be built. So he went to Artaxerxes, and he had a sad face, and Artaxerxes, the king, said, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? Right away, Nehemiah prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, help me with this one. You know, he didn't want his head cut off for being sad in front of the king. And he said, "Oh, king, my people are being ravaged in their capital city, Jerusalem, because the enemy comes in. They need walls built around that city. Would you please send me back to build the walls? And the very moment that Artaxerxes said, go, God started his stopwatch. And 490 years later, we would think all of these things would come about. The Messiah would be sitting on the throne, there would be everlasting righteousness. Sin would be completely taken care of. What an age. What a glorious time. So, the starting point is the command of Artaxerxes, which we know to be March 445 BC. Then it says from the command to restore and build Jerusalem, which we know as Artaxerxes, March 445 BC, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven and 62 make 69. I think the seven-week period is the time it took to build the city walls—52 days for that—and then to um, to rebuild Jerusalem, that whole area, 49, 49 years. Either way, though, sixty-nine year or sorry, sixty-nine weeks is four hundred and eighty-three years. So, from the are you guys with me? From the command of Artaxerxes to rebuild the walls until Messiah shows up would be 483 years. We know that for sure. 490 until he's seated on his throne, but 483 when when he's revealed. If you go March 445 BC plus 483 years, it brings you to April about the year 30 or 33 AD. What happened in the spring of the uh, either 30 or 33 A.D., however you want to do the math. Jesus came on the scene. Do you remember the day of Palm, uh, the triumphal entry? What makes the triumph, triumphal entry so powerful is this. Jesus sets up the events of that exact day, and he rides in Jerusalem on a donkey, on the, on the foal of, of a donkey. So he's, uh, he's coming into, in a, as a humble king, and the scribes and the Pharisees say, Jesus, have everybody stop praising you and crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Have them stop doing that. Jesus said, if they stop, the stones will cry out. Why? The stones would have to cry out because that is the day 483 years after Artaxerxes' command, just like Daniel said. It had to happen that exact day, which is why when Jesus knew he'd be rejected in Luke 19, verse 44, he's weeping. And he says, He says, O Israel, O Jerusalem, if you had only known the day of my visitation. Every person in Israel should have known the day of the Lord's triumphal entry. Because Daniel had foretold it was 483 years from the command to rebuild Jerusalem. All you had to do was keep an accurate count, pass it on to the next generation, and they would wait for the Messiah. And they didn't. They had the word of God, but they didn't hold fast to it. And Jesus wept because they did not know the day of his appearance. Here, Daniel said, it'll be 483 years until Messiah the Prince arrives on the scene. Then verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, which is really the 69th week, it says Messiah shall be cut off. Literally, slain. The Messiah will be dead. But not for himself. Or I think better, it would be and he shall have nothing. There'll be nothing for himself. He should have a crown. He doesn't. He's got a crown of thorns. He should have a kingdom. He doesn't. He's crucified on a cross. He should have subjects, and he should have everything that goes with being king. He doesn't. He's nailed to the cross. He has nothing. So here, after the 483 years, Messiah shall be slain, and he will have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. I believe that's Titus in AD 70 but also picturing the Antichrist in the future and we'll get into that later. Until the end of the war desolations are determined. Verse 27 Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. I think this is the Antichrist. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. It is the 70th week of Daniel. 69 weeks already took place and Jesus was crucified on a cross. At that point God stopped the stopwatch. 483 years have clicked off. God put a huge pause in history and he did something totally different than Israel. He developed the church. The church, Jewish and Gentile, in one body of believers, brothers and sisters, equal in God's eyes in the church. He created a new man and it's called the church and we're living in the church age. And when this is over, he's going to rapture us, he's going to remove us from the scene, And then what what has to happen? The 70th week of Daniel, this one week that's still hanging out there, has got to be fulfilled. And who is it for? Israel and Jerusalem. So when we read the book of Revelation, we're reading it in light of Israel and Jerusalem. God is really bringing wrath upon the earth, not for all the nations and all the sin. He's doing it to humble Israel's hard hearts. Because at the end of seven years, You know what Israel is going to do? Romans 11 says, All Israel shall be saved. At the end of seven years, Israel will be so humbled, they will see their Messiah come from the clouds, and they will see the pierced hands and feet, and they will say, We have crucified our Messiah. That is our Messiah. We claim him. We trust him. We believe in him. That's what the seven years is all about. Having Israel repent over the rejection of the Messiah. And when they do, Jesus will come back with power and great glory. So the, the seven-year period of tribulation, it's really this 70th week that hasn't been fulfilled. And it's going to happen in the future. How does it start? The Antichrist will confirm a covenant with many for one week. It could be a covenant between the Arab people and the Jewish people. And it, it, there'll finally be peace in the Middle East temporarily. That's gonna, as soon as that covenant is signed... You can guarantee, you can count exactly seven years, 1,260 days times two, you, can, you will be able to count the exact number of days till Jesus touches foot on this planet. It's going to be phenomenal. Anybody who's alive during that time with a Bible in their hand, knowing the day the covenant is signed by the Antichrist between these parties, will, they will be able to count down to the very day that Jesus comes back to this planet. We don't do that for the rapture. We have no idea what day or time. But they'll know the second coming. So he's gonna, then it says, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Wow, what a savior. Um, the Antichrist will rise up, put an end to the temple sacrifices. It's called the abomination of desolations. I'll teach you that as we get into the book of Revelation. We'll look at Matthew 24 as well. And at the end of seven years... Jesus will come back. He will bind Satan and cast him in a bottomless pit for a thousand years. Wow. Um, We have such a great Savior. What are some applications that I can give you? I have two. My first application is this God is a master of details, isn't He? He uses numbers, He uses patterns in the Bible. He has picked this pattern of 490 years for Israel, 483 already fulfilled. And now we're just on a big pause, a big gap. And as soon as the church is raptured, the the covenant will be made, and then the time will click again, and everything God has said will happen. Every judgment upon this earth will happen, just like he says in the Bible, and he will come back at the exact appointed day that he has planned. He is a master of details. By the way, Seven billion people on this planet and God knows everything that's going on. He knows what we're all thinking. He coordinates all of our activities and in his sovereign plan, his will always gets accomplished. Nobody can thwart God's will. Our president can't, no president can, no leader of any nation can rise up and defeat God's plan. He's just a master of details. Knowing that, can God take care of my life? Can he take care of all the problems in my life and all the details that need attending to? Sometimes I feel overwhelmed. I feel like, I'm losing control of myself and I'm just one person. But yet, God is control and, and God can handle every situation that comes my way. He can handle every detail of my life. My, the details of my life are small compared to all of these nations fitting into God's plan with seven, a seven-year period and the Antichrist raging and the angelic realm at war. Oh, he has his hands full, but he never loses control. He is in charge of every detail. What a great God. And secondly, I think the second application, God always keeps his promises. When he said he will come for us, he will come. When he says he will come in power and glory to establish a kingdom, he will do that. When that kingdom crushes all other earthly governments, he will do that. What he has said, he will do. I can trust him. We cannot trust one another's word, can we? The best, we we try. We try hard to always do exactly what we say, but we are fickle and we are sinners. But God, when he says something, he always accomplishes it, without a doubt. He is true to his word. When he says, Jesus is coming for us, he is, have hope. When he says he will put an end to sin and bring about everlasting righteousness, he will do it. We just have to be patient. So God is in charge of the details. He can handle it. And secondly, he always keeps his promises. Every promise of the first coming, perfectly fulfilled. He will do the same for the second. And so then we begin next week our study of, this, of all the details of his second appearance it'll be a um, a great challenge for us. It'll be, I think, a great time in God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our evening together. What a day, starting with our Sunday school classes and then having the Lord's Supper in the morning worship service, and then now concluding tonight with just some very um, incredible thoughts about your plan for Israel and Jerusalem, consisting of 490 years, much of which has already been uh, taken care of, 483 years accomplished. These last seven years, will be accomplished. They will be fulfilled in the same manner, literally, and in in the future. Um, Thank you, Father, that you will rescue us from this time of wrath, that the church will be gone, and you will again work with the nation Israel. And they will humble themselves, and they will receive Jesus as their Messiah. I pray that we would be sharing that good news with other people around us, so they could trust the Messiah right now and be spared from the day of wrath. Father, please save men and women. Help us to disciple them and train them in the ways of the scriptures that you would be glorified and, uh, and the church would be built and strengthened. Have your way with us this week. Father, help us to live for Christ and to love him each and every single day. We love you so much. And thank you for your master plan for the ages. You have not left us alone, and you have not left us without knowledge and wisdom of what's going on in the future. Help us to be good students of the word. And may then it strengthen our faith and cause great godliness to abound. We love you so much, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.